It's time for Super Soul Solutions with Marilee Milmo. Marilee is an avid researcher with over four decades of intuitive healing and related experience. Here she explores many intriguing unknown and lesser known topics on her Super Soul Solutions show. Get ready for the next adventure. Here's Marilee now. Hello, welcome everyone to Super Soul Solutions. Thanks for your patience getting started a couple minutes late. Today's show is titled 2021, the year to remove the blinders and learn what has and is really going on. Carl Sagan, a well-known cosmologist and astronomer said, quote, it is far better to grasp the universe for what it really is rather than persist in delusion however satisfying and reassuring, end quote. So as you all know, we can only apply wisdom and discernment as mature earth citizens when we know the truth of what is going on in our world and why certain events have occurred and are happening now by those in the know with boots on the ground. So I'm so excited to share with you my special guest today who has both his boots on the ground and wings out in space. And Randy Kramer is the only Marine Special Section Officer that has been given permission to disclose the facts to Earth civilians about currently used greener and cleaner advanced technology and 70 years of trade with off-world extraterrestrial civilizations. Captain Kramer spent a 30-year tour with the secret space program Earth Defense Force including a 17-year tour on Mars Defense Force. I have followed all his work and find him honest, ethical, and skilled at eloquently clearing confusion by bringing his specially qualified credentials to this show. And it is a true honor, Randy, to have you as a guest, and thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. My pleasure to be here. Thanks, Randy. So let's start right off by sharing with our audience why your soul chose to come to Earth now and how you became a super soldier in the secret space programs defending both Earth and on Mars. Wow. Uh, okay, that's a fairly loaded question, I guess. All right, so uh, throw that first part at me one more time to make sure okay. I heard that correctly. Okay, share with our audience why your soul chose to come to Earth now. Okay, Ooh. you want to do well, um, I don't know. I mean, I know the answer to that question. I'm not sure I can tell you the answer to that question other, other than in a very simplified and general way, which is, um, you know, to make the world a, a better place in the sense of to ensure that civilization on planet Earth continues. Because without civilization on planet Earth, there's no really focused goal or evolution or growth pattern for humanity without a civilized structure. So I think I really came here to make sure that civilization endures. That makes total sense. And uh, I know we could talk for hours on how you became a super soldier in the secret space programs, defending earth and on Mars. But if you could just explain to the audience a little bit about that history, that would be lovely. Sure. Well, I guess the short version of that is um, the United States Marine Corps Special Section as a covert military space program division uh, was working on genetically augmented soldier programs kind of from it started really in sort of the mid late 1960s. So I was actually genetically engineered pretty much from the ground up as part of an augmented soldier program that uh, was began in the late 1960s and would have had me and other members of the project born in about 1970. So uh, really started from the very, very get-go. It's not like I enlisted. It's not like I volunteered. It's not like somebody asked me real nice. Um, you know, genetic <laughs> yeah. sample was taken from my mother. Genetic sample was taken from my father. I was sort of made at a fertilized cell stage. The uh, genome is, for people who understand uh, genetics and the nuclei of the cell, the genome is curled up in a really tight ball and they unrolled that out of the nuclei of the fertilized cell group to tinker with the genetics to give whatever, you know, smarter, faster, stronger genetic augmentations that they wanted to give. So that essentially, um, 
we start out sort of from the get-go with a better engineered platform instead of trying to do techniques in which you're trying to change genetics after the fact, which problems with them. So there's a lot of history and a lot of complexity to that. But the short answer is I got made to do my job by some smart genetic engineers that wanted to make me uh, better at killing things than everybody else. Right. Okay. And then just, just to be clear, there's no AI here. The soul came in fully volunteered. Right? Oh, yeah. Just, no, I'm, sure. I'm no, just I, making I, that again, clear I, for I, I the audience. I have a very clear conscious awareness of why I came here, where I came from, and, and what that aspect of my soul or my spirit or whatever we want to call it is. I'm very clear about that. It just kind of turns out to be one of those things I don't think is anybody's business for me to share that with them, the details of them, so I, I keep it close right. to my chest. But I'm, I'm very clear about that. No, there's no AI in my brain anywhere that I'm aware of. Okay, All good. organic just, as far as I know. Right, and, and so AI means artificial intelligence. Okay, so mm-hmm. thank you. That, that is fascinating. Now, when you were stationed on Mars, can you share with people what is Mars being used for? And what was your job? Well, so the colonies were established uh, sometime in the early 1970s when the sort of construction began. I, my understanding is the first, uh, like, real groups of personnel that were sent to live there were really established somewhere sort of 1974, 1975. So the colony system uh, has to have a independent military contractor defense system, so which turns out to be the MDF for the Mars Defense Force. So my job basically was I got assigned to the MDF uh, as a military, as a soldier, uh, parceled out to different Earth Defense Force agencies that need soldiers. So basically contracted out to the MDF to essentially hold a perimeter that goes around the colonies. We were never allowed to be in the colonies, at the colonies, never seen them. All I know is that we occupied a space that was around the perimeter to make sure that anything that was outside the perimeter did not go past us and towards the inner uh, part of the territory, which held the colonies. So because there's no less than four or five indigenous species on Mars, two of which we really encountered in the northern region where we were, which was an insectoid species and an indigenous reptoid species. So there was some military conflict uh, most of the time that I was there for that and essentially was just to act as a buffer zone for the colonies. Mm-hmm. So um, the four to five species were basically human, uh, an upright insectoid, so to speak, large species, uh, reptoid or reptilian species, right? And they all right. had their they all had their own little bases and sections divided on the Mars, and then everyone kind of protected that, right? Is that correct? Well, I, I mean it's as simple as territorial claims and disputes are anywhere, including here on planet earth. Uh, when you, you know, settle down somewhere and decide we're going to build a colony here. Uh, you kind of set up a perimeter and anything that's outside of that perimeter territorially may not like that you're there, or you may want to extend your territory a little bit. So it's the same uh, as it is anywhere else. You, you bump up against people and you get territorial and you end up poking each other in the eye and punching each other in the face every once in a while because of territorial <laughs> disputes. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And you were, of course, briefed to be prepared for all these species that you would run into, correct? <laughs> Obviously, right? Well, I, I wouldn't say briefed and prepared for all the species I ever ran into. I would say that part of the training program we used to call uh, training for exotic locations and uh, exotic targets, which is a nice way of saying alien worlds and killing alien beings. So we're trained for that, but I wouldn't say trained for everything that we ever experienced. I would say just trained and conditioned from a very, very early age so that you don't have amygdala shock, which is essentially Mm. what happens to most people the first time they something that's non-human they go into amygdala shock which basically your amygdala the part of your brain that reacts much faster than your frontal lobe does and we pretty much send you into a panic state so if you don't freeze and go catatonic then you panic and start running or you know screaming or 
whatever people do when they panic. But uh, the amygdala response tends to override the frontal lobe response when people encounter something that's otherworldly. But we were conditioned for it. So first time, you know, it was still a little shocking to me, but I was prepared mentally and emotionally as I could be, I suppose. So really, you know, after having done that for a, a few years, I would say I was completely conditioned to any environment that I might be in where I would have to engage militarily with something that was not a human being or was of an alien origin, because at that point it was just normal. It was just my Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> oh, um. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, it's just, okay. it's just, it sets a different standard for normal. You know, my Tuesday yeah. afternoon was different than your Tuesday afternoon, but it was, that was just a Tuesday afternoon. Exactly. So I know people at this point learning about a lot of the species and that they're real will want to know this answer to put their mind at rest. What percentage of the millions of species that are out there, as well as inside the earth, are what we call friendly to us? And what percentage do not have our best interest in mind? Yeah, so luckily that breaks down in something we call the 95-5 rule. So, so far uh, that is held standard as we continue to encounter more and more species out in the wider universe that we have. And that 95-5 rule means that 95% of whoever we run into would rather at least talk about maybe trading stuff or be nice or share things and really kind of a 5% or less that are uncooperative scavengers, you know, dominators, assholes, and other, you know, sort of pirates pirates (laughs) and so forth. Yeah. So it's really less than really about 5% or less. Uh, Now, when you get into numbers of like 200,000 civilized worlds in our own galaxy, 5% 5% becomes a, a good-sized number to be concerned about, but the emphasis really is, yeah, that 95% of that number uh, is are good neighbors. And, and so we really should be a lot more comfortable entering into the intergalactic community by just seeing it as entering into a much bigger neighborhood with a lot more neighbors who more often than not are good neighbors and not bad neighbors. So it really is a uh, it's not even it's not even a fifty fifty. It's ninety five five. So it's a it's That's a pretty so awesome. good odds out there. Yeah, that we're we're you're dealing with mostly people that are, you know, going to have uh, at least somewhat good neighborly friendly interests at heart, and only that five percent that you got to worry about. But <clears throat> that's why we'll always have the need for a fierce and well trained military because there's always exactly. going to be someone that we have to defend exactly. ourselves from. Exactly. I was just going to say, and thus thus we have you and your team, and kudos to the team that supports you as well. I want to say that publicly. So I don't know if you're allowed to say say this. You're welcome um, on radio, but can you share some of the special abilities as a super soldier? Uh, You know, what I know that everyone has their own unique, but then there's kind of like, isn't there kind of a standard of what we think is special abilities? but are probably abilities a lot of us have that are suppressed. Would you say that's fair? Sure. Yeah, a, a lot of that comes down to um, small edges in uh, speed, mobility, uh, calculating thinking, um, and reaction time. So when you're talking about a standard hand-to-hand combat interaction between one physical body and another physical body, the margins of uh, muscle response, uh, central nervous system response, and how quick the brain can calculate. And if your muscles can move a little bit faster, those edges become huge uh, in an actual fight between one physical person and another. So you don't necessarily need gigantic edges in those things to see an advantage. But as soon as you start developing even moderate psionic abilities, then you add a tiny bit of precognition into that so that as you're fighting, you're actually anticipating things that are happening because you're precognitating that they're going to happen, 
which is a whole other level of fighting when you can know where the punch or the kick or the throw or the bullet is going to come from. It makes it completely elementary to not be where the punch, the kick, or the bullet is going to be. So um, the equivalent of sort of being able to dodge an attack because you know where it's going to be when it's coming because you're using precognition instead of just, you know, hand-eye coordination. Um, what also become a greater and greater ability to be present in the mind of an opponent, which can not just give you an edge because you can sense what they're thinking, but it can give you an edge in how you can contaminate their own thinking process. So fighters know that, you know, you, you say things or you do things to psych out an opponent. Well, there are things psionically that you can do to psych out an opponent that can terrify them, make them feel uh, completely, you know, unable or inadequate to feel like that they can stand or defend against whatever you are, whatever, you know, they're in front of. Mm -hmm. You can psychologically, psionically mess with their emotions and mess with their brain and things that um, can give you a tremendous edge. Uh, If you can, anybody knows if they've studied war throughout history, if you can enter into a situation in which your opponent is terrified of you, you have an edge, you have a real edge because they're scared. And if you Mm -hmm. can use a psionic ability to instill fear into someone, you you add all those other edges that I mentioned, the tiny bits of physical, uh, mechanical intelligence and central nervous system reaction time, with a little precognition and with a little ability to send psionic fear into your opponent's brain. And now you're talking about an, a battle edge that's huge. That's not a little bit at all. It's a gigantic edge when mm-hmm. entering into combat with another species that doesn't have that ability. That is, yeah, that makes total sense. But also in martial arts, those that are really good at that. And also a lot, have, well, not a lot, but a few of them have telekinesis and different abilities like that. Now, would oh, you yeah, explain? There, there are, there are even, right? Yeah, there are even more advanced abilities that weaponize psionics, telekinesis, pyrokinesis, a few other things. Yeah, there, there's even a, a level beyond that, which is actual weaponized uh, psionic ability, correct? Okay, and then would you explain so just rare. for that, that that takes a level of specialization that is a little more rare. Okay, understood. Um, would you just define psionics to the public, just in case they don't know what that is, please? Sure. Psionics is an output of waves from your brain, which we identify as a physical effect, meaning it is uh, governed by laws of physics and something that we call. Uh, a psionic wave, which is measured in psions per second. So it's an actual mental output of brainwave uh, and scalar wave energy from your brain that has the ability to impact matter and energy around you. Well, well said. And if I remember right, aren't you uh, providing for the first time for civilians and other people a um, for yes, those that want it? very excited. Yes, we're very excited that the online course is being put together, and we think we'll have the first four lessons up uh, for people to sign up for sometime early, middle of March, so super soon. And then the subsequent lessons will be packing in right back on top of that, so we, we expect to have the whole thing up and online in the next couple months. Okay, and just briefly, we'll go over this at the end. Do you want to give them your website or where they go? to check that out? Sure. The website is covertspacecowboy.com or via uh, my Facebook page, which is the Captain Randy Kramer Facebook page. So those are the two places right now that everyone can get those updates for sure. Okay. And Kramer spelled C-R-A-M-E-R, folks. Okay? Correct. C-R-A-M-E-R. Okay. So um, now... My last Super Soul Solution show spoke a little about the holographic regenerative med beds, and you are very knowledgeable about them and actually are working really hard to bring that technology out to U.S. civilians, which is my passion, too, and I'm so appreciative of. So as a soldier, for people to understand, really get the importance and how this could change the world, as a soldier, you have experienced the med beds yourself many times 
after having parts of your body blown off. So could you walk the listeners through how that tech works and how you experienced it repairing your missing arm or body part? Sure. So essentially it is a a combination of two pieces of technology. There's a software element and a hardware element. The software element uh, is able to take a blood or tissue sample and get a perfect uh, read of the DNA code from that sample. Then that software is able to take that code translate it through a software code so that it rebuilds that person to a level of cellular resolution via that genetic code. That's as a, then as an, an electronic uh, essentially image. Now the hardware element is the holographic projecting lens, which has some special properties to it. So even though I explain this, I'm not giving away this, all the secrets by telling how this works this way. So the holographic projecting lens then projects that image, that cellular level genetic identic image of the person that you're treating over the damaged tissue. And one of two things sort of happen at the same time there, which is that the damaged cells through a physical phenomenon, again, a phenomenon of the laws of physics, uh, something called dominant harmonic frequency resonance will then naturally begin to conform and change their shapes back into ideal cells. The other thing that happens is that the nuclei of damaged cells become fooled by the presence of holographic cells and holographic nuclei that then the cells will continue to grow into. So not only can you restore any damaged tissue, interior or exterior, but you can also restore lost tissue. So a finger that's blown off, a hand that's blown off, an arm or a leg that's blown off, you can grow all the way down to fingertips or toes and regrow severed and destroyed limbs. So cool. And that's a map. I know it does tons of things, but, you know, we'll get into that later. But it's so cool because um, that, if I'm right, only takes a couple hours, doesn't it? Well, it depends on how much tissue you have to repair. The more tissue you have to repair, the longer it can take. If I had my hand uh, burnt and had third-degree crispy burns all over it, I could probably get that hand repaired in an hour and a half to two hours. If I lost an arm uh, or had an arm that was fully damaged, that could take, you know, the better part of a day. If I had, you know, a couple arms and a couple legs that had gone missing and a good portion of my torso, I could be, you know, in that thing regenerating cellular tissue for several days. Mm-hmm. And then the one trippy thing about it, too, one of the many things is that even if you're, if I have this right, even if you're clinically dead, quote, unquote, and uh, the soul is kind of hovering over the body, you can also regenerate it within a certain amount of hours if the soul's willing to come back in. Is that correct? Yeah, basically. So um, the way we used to talk about it is um, that if someone is dead, they could be just partially dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, They might not be all the way dead. Or if someone's all the way dead, then you know they're dead, dead. So, and that is sort of based on the condition of how much of the body is really like gone. And in some cases, there's enough body parts that are gone that if you couldn't hold the tissue into a stasis field and stop it from dying, then the body would just die and there would be nothing to cling on to. But as long as there's some, a certain amount of electrical activity in the brain to cling on to, and you have a stasis field that can keep that the cellular tissue from dying and decaying so it can still hold that electrical charge, then that silver cord stays connected. And as long as that silver cord's connected, they can literally yank you back from the afterlife, back into your body against your free will, if as long as that cord is still connected. Uh, if that cord's connected, it's like snipping um, a helium balloon and it just, you fly away and go wherever and there's no retrieving you back into your body. So um, 
we essentially would just, you know, label people as either retrievable or unretrievable. And so if mm. you were able to treat someone and bring them back, you know, from a state of, you know, not quite total death, they were retrievable. If someone didn't make it, you would just say they were unretrievable, which is, again, very polite words for saying that people are dead yeah. or not dead. But um, retrievable or unretrievable, sort of dead, not really dead, completely dead. These are all, you know, scales of experience based on the ability uh, to just yank you back into your body as long as you're still connected. Yeah, because these soldiers are really expensive uh, assets. Yeah, from no. what I understand, and then of like course, start to finish it. Clones that we won't get necessarily into in the show. It'll be too much, but yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm from sure they understanding start to finish. It costs like over a hundred million dollars to make me. So repairing Woo-hoo. me as many times as it takes to throw me back into the field is worth a hundred million dollars. So yeah. Wow, that is amazing. So um, I don't know if you'll be able to share this point, but what? extraterrestrial species did we get the holographic med bed technology from? Do you know? Um, I think it was from the Centauri uh, who, mm-hmm. you know, are living around Alpha Centauri. So I, I think it was from the Centauri. Hmm. I think that's where we got it from first. I, we're manufacturing our, we've been manufacturing our own for a while, but they were making such cheap and efficient ones. I know that we were buying most of all of our holobeds from them initially because they were just making them really cheap and efficiently, but we're, we're making our own now. Okay. Which, and that's a great point because that brings us into the whole trade thing. And I have heard two other super soldiers speak about visiting the huge ambassadorial ship that orbits Jupiter. And uh, will you be willing to share your delightful experience going there and give our audience kind of like a tour of the environment and what that was like, including the many species you saw. Would you be willing to do that? Well, I mean, that's a lot of story right there. So there's a little bit I can tell you about that. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an amazing place. So it's a multi-level, uh, let's call it a satellite station, which the main level is probably about a mile in diameter pretty big so kind of a roundish room mostly round room with a floor to ceiling 360 degree uh, window view and floor to ceiling is about I'd say probably close to 80 feet so Mm -hmm. that it can it can house uh, or or, uh, you can have meeting space for the tallest uh, life form that I have seen in that room which is about 55 or 60 feet tall Whoa, and what's the smallest? About 18 inches. <laughs> you probably have a beautiful view of Jupiter out those windows, don't you? It is an astonishing view. And I can say that that view up close, there is no camera shot, no satellite picture, no Hubble picture, no Voyager picture that equals standing there and looking at the, the colors in those gas clouds. It's just absolutely stunning. Oh, oh my God. It's just so exciting. So um, does everyone go through, you know, the, the plasma shower or whatever it's called that neutralizes all the germs, right? And you were there for security reasons initially. Is that why you were well, invited there? Yeah, I mean, I, I was what we call, and I'm going to make air quotes that nobody can see when I say that just-in-case <laughs> guy, um, because we're humans, and we, we're, we're paranoid little monkeys, and we like to have someone, you know, who's good in a fight uh, in a meeting between diplomats because we never know what's going to happen just in case. But to be perfectly clear, this was a very stable diplomatic environment, no bad actors, nobody going crazy. This isn't a crazy cantina scene where people are, you know, shooting each other over deals. It was a very (laughs) polite diplomatic environment. And so really I just got to go along. um, What ended really ended up being just for the sake of being able to tag along. So I was sent because I was one of the only bridge officers, uh, pilots that had hand to hand, like full infantry hand-to-hand experience. So sometimes these diplomats would come to do these diplomatic missions, and they were like, who who have you got to be the just-in-case guy? And I was like, "Uh, Kramer. 
So mm. I would end up getting to go on these missions and really just got to sit there and sometimes talk, sometimes interact, sometimes depends on the meeting. But um, yeah, the whole reason that I ever got to go there was never a reason that I had to be there. So in that sense, I really consider it like one of the luckiest, most fortunate things that I ever got to do because there really was no need for me to be there. But I, I was just fortunate so enough cool. to be there. Yeah, they which, they wanted a just-in-case so cool. guy, and when I got the pull out of the hat, I got to be the just-in-case guy, but I never had to do anything of the kind. It was really just the cushiest, easiest, coolest thing ever to just show up and go on those missions. It so, was fun. It was really, really interesting. So, so Randy, are you in – describe a little bit more for people. Um, are you in, like, some big, huge living rooms, you know, different chairs, sizes, cafeteria kind of thing? And how many – extraterrestrials and ambassadors are all there and what's the purpose oh so the main room uh if it 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 could be the base sort of state of that room is an empty room with not a single stitch of furniture in it but Mm -hmm. but as people make appointments to come in and have conversations with other groups other species conversational environments are created out of hard holographic light So think holodeck, like Star Trek holodeck when I say that. So the ability to create tables, chairs, uh, or or even a liquid environment and a gaseous environment, I mean, whatever you would need to create as a conversational environment between two species, including uh, a big table for someone to sit at who's 25 feet tall with a little teeny table on top of that big table for someone much smaller to sit at while they have a conversation. And so those... Holographic environments can change at any time based on the appointment schedule of people who are coming to have those conversations. So conversational environments are changing constantly based on who's coming in and who's having a conversation. And at any given time, there are literally hundreds of meetings taking place in that room. Again, it's like a mile in diameter. It's huge. So in some cases, uh, you're, you're no farther than you know, 10 or 15 feet from the table next to you, um, which could be in in multiple directions. So you could literally be, um, you know, shouting distance or, you know, loud voice distance, not even shouting distance, but loud voice distance to, you know, um, half a dozen different species or a dozen different species having other conversations about trade contracts or, you know, treaties or whatever it is that they're talking about. So you basically that is so 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 fun. So you basically could have like an amphibian hybrid or amphibian being over on your right who has like some kind of water suit or water holographic thing to survive. You can have a reptilian yeah, on your left. A, you might have, be in a giant tank. Might be in a giant tank that's been created for them to be able to be in a water base in that environment. Yeah, correct. So cool. And then in the meantime, you've got smart tables. I think the first time that stuff was shown was Minority Report, wasn't it, with Tom Cruise, where they showed, you know, kind of how the smart glass pads and the smart tables go up into 3D and all of that kind of stuff, right? Do you have all that uh, up there? Maybe. I'm not a big Tom Cruise movie watcher. I, I think I saw Minority Report, but that was a long time ago, so I'm going to go with maybe on that reference. <laughs> I know. I understand. Okay, but I'm sure the audience is, like, wondering, like, how does everyone communicate? Now, I know that all super soldiers are trained in psionics and telepathy, and most advanced species are telepathic. But don't you have to have translator devices or telecom devices or things like that? Oh, sure. You have all of the options. Uh, So there's a computer translator, which isn't much more than, like, a black box that sits on the table. And when one person talks, it translates. And then, you know, the other person talks and translates. You can also have a physical language translator, which is a person or a being of some kind. But we really say person or people. Everyone's a person or a people. doesn't matter what species they are. You don't have to say being. You can just say person or people. They're all persons and they're all people. Um, So you have Mm -hmm. another person who is acting as a physical translator who's using the language that you're speaking to translate and speaks both or multiple languages to do that in. You can have a psionic translator, someone who is translating using telepathy. 
there's also a little halo that you can wear so that you can have a, a assisted psionic conversation. Um, I want so one really, of those. Yeah, there's, <laughs> they, they have fun. their advantages and disadvantages. Let me let me just say that each form of communication has its advantages and disadvantages, and depending on who you're talking to, will have a preference for the use of one type of communication or another for contract or treaty negotiation. There are even some species who are fairly telepathic who would still rather sit down and talk a contract out because that's more specific than a telepathic conversation about a contract. Got it. Okay. Now, you're, um, do you want to share with the audience? So this is basically a huge trade. Uh, you know, everyone's trading, doing species. and big. Can you give the audience examples of the most traded items, et cetera? Beer, clothing, chocolate, coffee, <laughs> military hardware. Yeah. What I mean, about, those are like some, what about those are like DNA? Those are like the top five. What's what about that? DNA? Um, it, it, it's, 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 it's not as big of a commodity as some people think that it is. It, it's, it's really, to be honest with you, genetics are a dime a dozen. Okay, because really everyone's are. into it, and they're all doing genetics and hybridization, so they're pretty advanced. Yeah, all every, that right. Everyone is, but, they, but, but it's kind of like everyone's doing it because everyone's got access to it. Everyone, it, It's not that – it means that you're looking for certain traits. You might be looking for certain qualities for preferences, but to be honest, you know, genetics are just everywhere. And, and so yeah. it's not that – it's not that if you have a, 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 a box of different samples of genetics and you go into a, a bar and say, dude, I got some prime genetics that you're going to be able to get anything <laughs> for that. You know what I'm saying? Like, like yeah. now maybe for like, now, now, now maybe for like my genetics, because I'm an augmented soldier, like, dude, I got an augmented soldier, like proven, <laughs> like that's worth something. That's worth something, you know, as a, as a tool yeah. that's, that's, that has a little more value to it. But even then, doesn't necessarily translate into a, a, a really tradable good or a, a, a tremendous value for someone just having a sample. Just because someone cut my finger off doesn't mean they're getting a bunch of money to make copies of me. Right. Okay. And and of course, there's no. Uh, I mean, like, how do you de- how do you deal with the food issue or water issue or I mean, because all their unique species have cultures and different protocols and you could offend them right like you have to learn all that talking about the intergalactic space station yeah no food there's no food serving of food in the main meeting room of the intergalactic space station that can get weird um mostly as far as uh beverages it's basically water and uh drinks that i would say that are based on fruit juices Mhm. Yeah, some of them are healthier. really good too. Some of them are really, really good. Do we trade but, yeah, for those? But very simple stuff. Simple stuff to drink and, and no food, because yeah, people can get weirded out by what someone else is eating and be like, "That's my little brother Tony," and like freak out. <laughs> That's my cousin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, bizarre sense of humor here. Okay, um, fascinating. So, so can you give them? So, didn't you do one? I mean, you had a um, an, a fascinating story, if I remember right. And I think the audience might be in slight cognitive dissonance, some of them, because for some of the listeners, perhaps this is the first time they're getting such an in-depth um, sense of what's really been going on with the ETs and our travel and our space. And you were sharing a wonderful example of that in a meeting, I believe, uh, with a different species where you went into cognitive dissonance. Explain that. Oh. Do you remember okay, what I'm talking about? I think I know what you're talking about. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so one of the things that happens that's really biologically, neurobiologically strange to me is when you enter into this room – your, your brain literally, your, your pattern recognition part of your brain becomes overwhelmed. And so it takes a minute 
for you to be able to see clearly the different sizes and shapes that you're looking at. Um, it does, so you of can walk into a crowd of people here on planet so you can walk into a crowd of people here on planet Earth and your brain doesn't go crazy because basically everyone's about the same size, about the same height, has about the same proportion of eye to ear to nose to mouth ratios. So your pattern recognition doesn't have to go crazy to accommodate what you're seeing. You go into a room where you're looking at potentially dozens and dozens of other species and all of a sudden the pattern recognition part of your brain has to work overtime. And so... Um, it's not uncommon to have headaches, blurry vision, uh, to, to not be able to see things or people clearly for a few minutes. There's sometimes an adaptation period that can take 15 or 20 minutes when you get into the room to sort of let your eyes adjust. But there's also something that can happen if you see something that your brain, for some reason or another, just decides it doesn't want to translate that image to you. And when you do, when that happens, uh, your brain will go into some form of automated cognitive dissonance, and it will, it will find an image in your brain to replace for what it's actually seen to prevent you from some sort of, like, shock, trauma, or whatever it's trying to prevent you from having, or, or, in, or in some cases, possibly because it simply cannot calculate the pattern change sufficiently to project an image to you, and so your brain basically goes, "Duh, I give up. I'm not sure what to do with this." And then it projects <laughs> another image over that, and so you see something differently. And so I remember um, we're sitting at the table, and um, this uh, person uh, goes by, and I just remember, you know, staring and going, "What in the world is happening there?" And then the guy uh, next to me, who was the senior diplomat, said, what, what did you see? And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, you, you saw something weird. And he's like, what did you see? And I said, I said, it looked like the scarecrow from the Wizard of Oz, man. I don't know what. And he was like, okay. <laughs> and, he, and, and then he started explaining. He was explaining to me. He's like, okay. He said, well, you know, that basically each, each person at the table saw something different because whatever that being species is, it causes like this just crazy cognitive dissonance that you can't calculate. Now, I asked him once, I was like, well, how, is there any way to know like what I didn't see? Yeah. <laughs> and he exactly. said, and he said, and he said, and he said, to be honest, you don't want to. So don't ask uh, any more questions because, he says it's really self-protective. He says he says it's yeah. not that. He says it's not necessarily that what you would see would be horrible or terrifying. It might just be something that's so shocking that you don't know what to do with it. He says, and I, and I was like, like what? I was like, I really was trying to figure out. And like, what do you mean? Give me an example. And he said, okay, what if instead what you saw, what was really there that you couldn't see was like a pile of seaweed that had thousands and thousands of little tendrils that came out with little suction cups on the end that had little teeth on them. Mm. And I was yeah. like, uh, he's like, yeah, exactly. He says, your brain <laughs> just might not be able to see that and cope. It mm -hmm. might just be so weird and so shocking and so different that, your brain is protecting you from having a panic attack. Mm -hmm. And, and, and anyway, it's complex and I don't stand it. I don't claim to fully understand it. Haven't only experienced it uh, two different times in my life. Um, but it, but it's a strange experience. And the way it was explained to me was your, your brain does have a pattern recognition limit and it does have a, a, a basically an object um, sort of recombination limit. And when you're in a room like that where you're looking at so many different species and so many different things, you can hit overload limits for your brain and literally not be able to see things as clearly um, or, or in some cases at all for what they are. There, there are times when I can remember literally not being able to focus on someone that I could see, 
but the pattern recognition in my brain was overloaded at that point, and it just didn't want to create a defined image that I could focus on, and it was like trying to watch someone, trying to look at someone through blurry water that was just where they were, not where anything else was. So not like you're looking through a lens of blurry water. It's just that where that person is standing is blurry water. And so mm-hmm. weird things can happen uh, when your pattern recognition is overloaded like that. But that's an, it was a very strange experience and, and happened enough times that, well, I mean, in one you know, or another, it was weird. It's, it's very weird. It's I don't, again, I don't claim great... to fully understand it. No, no, no. I totally get it. It's it's like such a um, great explanation, Randy. Thank you. And um, don't you think, okay, so for, you know, the civilians here running around Earth and walking around Earth and uh, people who don't know that there's so many ETs walking around Earth, don't you think that they there's a possibility that even walking by you, they actually can't see it because they don't know it exists? They don't have any pattern recognition for it? Well, that and in some cases the ability for them to project uh, some form of illusory uh, image over themselves can also occur. Um, I right. did have a friend who sent me a photograph that was taken by a guy who worked in the a security room at a Las Vegas casino. So he's sitting in front of security cameras all day long. And he sees something on the camera one day that he quickly pulls out his phone, takes a snapshot of before uh, the screen that he's looking at, the security screen he's looking at goes blank. So what he sees is he's looking at the blackjack tables and two guys come walking up to the table who have the palest, palest white skin, large Mm. craniums, no hair, uh, big eyes, not super big, but big. So clearly two dudes who are not from here. And, uh, yeah, well, no, no. I think these are contractors who who work at Nellis probably. Um, and so they, they got drinks and cigarettes in their hands. They sit down at the table with, you know, cocktails and a cigarette. And then the one guy, uh, looks up at the camera, looks directly into the camera and then that's when the image of the camera goes out. But just before that happened, he pulls out his phone and takes a snapshot. And then he calls right. down to the pit boss and says, hey, can you tell me about those two guys that just sat down at the blackjack table? And he says, oh, you mean the two guys in suits? And he's uh... describing two guys in blue suits with ties, drinking and smoking. So everyone on the floor did not see them as aliens right but the, apparently the camera caught them as aliens exactly. but they apparently were also able to recognize that they were being watched by the camera and had the ability to shut off the camera at a glance but this guy managed to take a snapshot and give it to a friend of mine and she she wouldn't give me a copy of the picture but did she did show it to me so i did see the yeah. actual snapshot uh, i saw what they looked like and it was it was an yeah. incredible shot. And they are literally sitting there with a you know a drink. Uh, he's like got a double whiskey sour in one hand and a cigarette in the other, and they're there to play blackjack after work. You know what I have said forever, like twenty years. I've told my friends the place that quote offworlders, onworlders, inworlders can go and really have a fun time. And it's so, such a weird place that nobody particularly even notices is Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're going to try your cloaking abilities or your projection abilities, that's the place to go, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and there are some species that use a technological hologram that that's like wearing, you know, like a device or a belt or something that does it. But yeah, there, there's mm-hmm. different options for camouflage. Now that being said. Um, isn't it true, at least in my research, that most species are, you know, the five-star thing, like humanoid, like two arms, two legs, and a head? It seems like, as you so eloquently put it in one of your speeches or one of your talks, is the universe replicates success, and it's and that kind of body form seems to be what the pro, pro, progenitors uh, preferred is most viable most of the time. Would you? Is that true? No, I would, I, would you actually, know, for, I, would, I would disagree with that a little bit. I would say that it's incredibly common 
okay. to see that form, but that the variation on still what forms are out there are quite, quite varied, quite varied and extreme. So yeah. I, I would say that it's, the universe does repeat successful patterns. So that's one of the reasons why we see a lot of that, but it's also something that we see more of because those are the species we're going to trade with because we have the stuff that fits the closest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but there are other species who are very, very different that we may not re- really have as many um, common interests for trade as we might if we were more biologically similar, but the universe does have a wide palette uh, as far as what life is and what it can be and what individual life, collective life, uh, civilized life. It's a, it's a really wide palette and paintbrush that the universe paints with, but Mm. it does definitely replicate success. Um, But let's just say, I mean, we're really talking about more than 200,000 civilized worlds in our own galaxy, just in the galaxy we're living in. Yeah. That's a lot of, even even if you have 30% uh, who are, you know, sort of star-shaped humanoids or bipedal, you know, uh, bi-opticaloids or whatever you want to say, um, that still can leave a huge percentage of things that are really different. So, I mean, you could could end up at a convention with thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of just other humanoids, but that doesn't mean that the universe is, you know all humanoids. It just means that you just happen to be at a conference where they're all hanging out because they all eat most of the same food and wear the same t-shirt size. It is so much fun talking with you, Randy. (laughs) I just love this. It's just so expansive. And I I really believe that Earth was set up for maximum diversity and kind of this, you know, garden planet and stuff. So, uh, you know, it's just delightful. And I hope the listener, I know the listeners enjoy you as much as I do. So, um, do you want to tell them again how to contact you, what services you provide, um, and, um, you know, the sure. et cetera? Sure. The easiest way to do that is via my website, which is covertspacecowboy.com, or via my Facebook page, which is the Captain Randy Kramer Facebook page, which I think you can also find searching via Covert Space Cowboy because – that's what we're using right now. So that's the easiest way for people to can get to me and can uh, get to my calendar to sign up for consulting appointments if they want to talk about things or have issues that they're trying to sort out. I do a lot of work with people who are recovering uh, memories from military programs and stuff like that. Perfect. And I, by the way, folks, have had um, several private, you know, readings and consulting with uh, Randy and highly, highly recommend him. So thank you so much, Randy, for sharing your super valuable time with us. And I'm so happy to announce that in two weeks, Randy will return again and share some amazing stories with us, such as his experience with other spacefaring civilizations, uh, species that live inside our Earth, and more about the his personal experience with age regression technology. And also maybe what we may look forward to expect for this year as truth disclosure continues to roll out. So thank you to all our listeners. And until then, onward and upward. Bye-bye.